The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 1982. Leicester. Haiti. In this small village in the heartlands of Haiti, a strange man is looking to conduct a rather strange interview. The interviewer is a Canadian ethnobiologist looking to do research into the veracity of Haitian mythology. The interviewee is a dead man. Or at least he was a dead man. Wade Davis has come all the way from Harvard University to seek out a man who was said to have defied logic and nature. Eventually he finds the residence. It belongs to the Narcisse family, and for those who still live there, they welcome him in. Davis wasn't the first to seek this man out, nor his kind. The first in this particular chain was Dr. Lamarck Duyon, a Haitian-born Canadian-trained psychiatrist who'd been working on similar cases since 1961. He contacted Dr. Nathan Klein, a New York psychiatrist and pioneer in the field of psychopharmacology, who put Dion in contact with Davis, then a 28-year-old student looking for his big research break. Davis's specialty was ethnobiology, the study of the science behind traditional medicines, studying which worked, which didn't, and why. He comes with glowing recommendations from his mentor, one Richard Evans Schultz, a professor of biology who turned him onto this particular venture. Davis knows little of Haiti, but has started formulating a hypothesis about this particular case. But it won't matter until he sees the results for himself. It's not a particularly lavish dwelling, Haiti then as now is comparatively poor. Still, the expected hospitality is extended to the scientist slash anthropologist, who is gracious for the openness of his hosts. After all, this isn't as though he's asking for something simple. Eventually, he meets the man he's looking for, Clavius Narcisse. He must be around 60 years old. He wears it as well as can be expected for somebody who supposedly went through what he had. They sit and they chat, and the story Narcisse tells Davis is almost too wild to be believed. 1962. Clavius Narcisse stumbles into the Schweitzer Hospital in Deschapelles, a town near his village, coughing up blood. The doctors don't know what's wrong with him, other than he's in serious trouble. He seems to have some sort of fever, but it wasn't like anything the American doctors working there had seen before. Before long, Narcisse was dead. Confirmed by several doctors, including an American doctor, he was pronounced dead three days after he'd entered the hospital, was placed in cold storage for 24 hours before having a full funeral and being buried. His death certificate confirms this as having been the case too. The thing is, Clavius Narcisse remembers all of this. He remembers hearing his sister weep over his body, the feeling of the casket lowering into the grave, the sounds of dirt piling on top, and then darkness and silence. Clavius Narcisse came back from the dead, 
but not in the way you might hope. Far from it, in fact. The next thing he remembers was waking up, sort of, on a plantation. He didn't know where he was, he didn't know how he got there. All he knew was he was supposed to be dead. Then he started walking. He wasn't alone. He was surrounded by a group of others just like him, mindlessly shuffling around, toiling in a sugarcane field. Narcisse spots the reason why. A bakor, a voodoo sorcerer, is controlling him and the others, using them as his undead slaves. The man barks the orders and he and the others obey without question. This is his new hell on earth, and it stays that way for two years. For two years, Narcisse and the others worked as slaves for the Bokor. That is, until the Bokor died. When that happened, the spell broke and the undead slaves were released from the enchantment. But they were all now alive again, and this took some getting used to. For Narcisse, the process of regaining his sanity and his identity after having died, been buried, been resurrected, and been enslaved, and then being freed, took 16 years. When he walked back into Lestra, his family recognised him in an instant. They were hysterical. How could he be alive? They'd all seen him die and buried him. But they also accepted his story as basically factual. You see, voodoo runs deep in Haiti. It's ingrained into the culture and is a part of life, in the background at the very least. So his story of being an undead thrall was not so hard to believe. Back in the small house in the 1980s, Davis is incredulous. But he can't deny the facts. He goes to the hospital and sure enough is the record of Narcisse's death back in 1962. His family all say it's him and he offers memories of his previous life as proof. The gears are turning in Davis's head, but he needs more evidence if the theory is to be proven. In what is one of the most ethically dubious investigations in academic history, Davis then headed into the town of Saint-Marc to meet a man called Marcel Pierre, a supposed voodoo sorcerer himself. After some beguiling, Pierre agreed to make the magical powder that could bring someone back from the dead. In theory, by not killing them at all. You see, Davis's theory was that the powder would place the person into a torpor, indistinguishable from death, but later waking them under a hallucinogenic spell. Making a batch of this powder tested the limits of Davis's academic integrity. For example, in order to obtain human bones, a key ingredient, he and Pierre actually dug up the grave of a child to take their bones for use. But eventually, the poultice is ready and Davis begins his testing. What follows is hypothesis after hypothesis from both Davis and those who challenge his idea. Davis's eventual book, titled The Rainbow and the Serpent, gets adapted into a horror movie, and it's not hard to see why. You see, part of the reason Davis took the Haiti assignment was because there was one particular element that intrigued him, a certain word that caught his eye and kept him invested in the cases it unfolded, one that, for better or worse, is now invariably attached to this case and others like it. Let's do one more rewind. 1937. Zora Neale Hurston, an American writer, is looking into a case that bears a striking resemblance to the later case of Clavius Narcisse. A Haitian woman, Felicia Felix Mentor, supposedly died in 1907 and was brought back from the dead. An x-ray of her legs showed she hadn't had a fracture in the same place that Felicia was supposed to have had, but all of her relatives took her back in after her brief stint as being undead regardless. But Hurston was influenced by another story, American explorer William Seabrook's 1929 book, The Magic Island, which, by citing Haiti's penal code no less, makes the claim that such occurrences were commonplace. So what gives? Is Haiti the pet cemetery of the Caribbean where the dead don't stay that way? Or is there something more genuine at work here? 
Today on Demystified, we look at the case of Clavius Narcisse and delve deep into the real-life explanations and theories for the concept of the zombie. Now, I know what you're thinking. Zombies? Really? But stick with me because we're in for a wild ride today. To start with, throw everything you think you know about zombies out of the window. Because we're not talking about Romero versus 28 Days Later zombies, we're talking OG Haitian voodoo. And to understand that, we're going to have to look at the history of Haiti. Haiti is the only country in the world to have been founded by a slave revolt. The actual situation was slightly more complex, but the long story short is that the French colony of Saint-Domingue liberated itself in a slave revolt between 1791 and 1804, and the predominantly West African slaves founded their own new country. Unfortunately, as history tells us, power did what it so often does, and Haiti didn't fully flourish, not least because the colonial powers of the day couldn't allow a society built on the ideal of abolition to succeed. But what it lacked in financial wealth, Haiti more than made up for in its unique culture, the syncretization between French Catholicism and West African religion resulted in what we now call today voodoo, based on the Vaudan religion of West Africa. But whilst the version found in Louisiana, specifically New Orleans, leans a little more Catholic, the version in Haiti leans a little more traditional. So Haitian voodoo is more than just a folk religion, it's a way of life. Whilst most practice within the broader Christian denominations these days, it's believed that around 50% of the population of Haiti practices voodoo in some form or another in their day-to-day -day life, today. Basically, Haitian voodoo works like this. The main deity, an unknowable supreme being called Bondier, from the French bon Dieu, meaning good god, doesn't interfere with the mortal world at all. His servants, called Loa, do instead. Each Loa represents something different. You may have heard of some of them, such as Papa Legba or Baron Samedi through pop culture osmosis. Individual practitioners can petition the lower for favour. The lower aren't deities themselves, merely aspects or servants of Bondier, who, due to his distance from the world, must act through intermediaries. But they don't expect something for nothing, and every service comes with a price. Strictly speaking, zombies don't entirely fall under the auspices of voodoo. This is because while sorcerers can create them, the Bokor, as they're known, are voodoo practitioners, it's through their individual magic that they arise, rather than the powers of lower. In essence, whereas a voodoo priest called a Hugan or a priestess called a Mambo work with the lower, Bokors are more like sorcerers, witches, warlocks, or necromancers. The magic they use is in the same ballpark, but they're not part of a formal voodoo structure, such as there are them. How one becomes a zombie is also a matter of debate. We'll get into Clavius Narcisse in a bit and the implications of it, but it's generally believed that the Bokor takes the zombie's soul and splits it into several parts. Whether this is done by the Bokor or at some point in natural death is not entirely clear. For instance, there's two types of zombie in Haitian voodoo. A physical zombie, which is basically a body with no soul, or a spiritual zombie, a soul with no body that can be kept in a jar and sold to bring spiritual power. This spirit reflects the idea of dualism that's present in Haitian voodoo that the soul and the body are separate entities. Either way, a zombie is entirely in the thrall of one who made it and has no free will of its own. It's also thought that the idea of the zombie was utilised by slave owners pre-revolution, either willing to get in on voodoo or practitioners themselves, to discourage suicide among the slaves. Essentially, don't kill yourself or I'll make you work forever. 
So the zombie holds an interesting place in the lore of Haitian voodoo. But how did it become such a well-known element of Western pop culture? And you can't deny that as a basic fact. A couple of years ago, it was all you could do to move for zombie media. It died down a little, but it was all zombie video games, movies, TV shows, books, zombie everything. As for why they're such a popular choice for the subject matter of those mediums, I think it's because they're a useful antagonist by way of plot device. You can have them as present or as absent as you like for the purposes of your story, and then have them show back up at a moment of tension, otherwise just being in the background to provide context or contrast for the plight of your otherwise normal characters. That's the why. As for the how, it goes back to the 1920s. In 1915, on the authority of Woodrow Wilson, US Marines occupied Haiti until 1934. The occupation was in response to the murder of President Jean Vilbrum Guillaume Sam by his political opponents. Whilst there, the American army doctors began examining cases of so-called zombies. They'd always been there in Haiti, as long as voodoo had been there, but it was only with the arrival of outside doctors that something that was as seen as the fact of life, or perhaps a fact of death, was being examined beyond the scope of either being folklore or taken as face value true. American occultist and explorer William Seabrook wrote The Magic Island in 1929, which was the first real exposition of the practices of Haitian voodoo to the outside world to be put into writing. Now, the penal code citation we mentioned earlier is as follows, and it is quite important. Quote, also shall be qualified as attempted murder the employment which may be made by any person of substances which, without causing actual death, produces a lethargic coma more or less prolonged. If, after the administering of such substances, the person has been buried, the act shall be considered murder no matter what result follows. End quote. This is interesting and important because what it hits upon is one of the biggest theories that we're exploring today with regards to the explanations for Haitian zombies. The idea that they're not really dead, they were given a substance that mimicked death and were then tricked thereafter. And we can't talk about zombies in pop culture without mentioning George A. Romero's 1968 classic Night of the Living Dead. That film follows a trend of earlier Western works, such as some of H.P. Lovecraft's writing, again, his influence doesn't underdo his personal views, and even earlier works such as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the trend being proposing an idea of an undead being that isn't directly attached to the term zombie, but would later be backwards identified as that. What we have is, in effect, a blending of two ideas, the Western conception of undead beings and the Haitian concept of the zombie, which, due to their apparent similarity, lended themselves to being combined into one concept. Of course, the voodoo of Louisiana in the United States can't be ignored, but the concept of the zombie is more prevalent in Haitian voodoo, it seems. So that's basically how we arrive at the modern idea of a zombie and how it differs from the Haitian concept. This is somewhat important because in our, our explanations of the phenomenon of Haitian zombies, we have to countenance the fact that they don't resemble what we in the West often think of as zombies, with the benefit of nearly a hundred years of cultural melding and co-option. So onto the other matter at hand, how do we explain the case of Clavius Narcisse? Well, let's go over the details again. In 1962, Clavius Narcisse stumbles into the American-run Schweitzer Hospital in Des Chapelles, near his home village. He's spitting up blood, feverish, lethargic, with muscle pains in an ailment seemingly unexplainable by the doctors there. After three days, he dies. This death is verified by several doctors at the hospital, and mentioning their American training isn't necessarily being Western-centric here, it's to amplify the fact that it wasn't due to a lack of training or equipment in 60s Haiti that a mistake was made, if a mistake was made. He's then kept in cold storage for 24 hours and given a burial and a funeral. This is the bit where the first gaps start to appear. 
Now, mention is made of anything like embalming or anything that would really check if he was dead, so I'm assuming that the family was either too poor to afford it, or the island didn't have the facilities to have it done, at least in that location. Then, after an indeterminate period of time, Narcisse awakens on a sugar plantation run by a bokor, a voodoo warlock. He's a zombie, raised from the dead by having his soulless body reanimated and is with a host of other zombies made to work the plantation as slaves. He stays in this state of affairs for two years until 1964 and the bokor dies and the spell is broken. Now, Narcisse doesn't return to his village until 1980 or thereabouts, so that's where the second big gap starts to appear in the story. You may be asking, well, how do we know this was the real Clavius Narcisse? Well, that's down to the testament of the family and the village. As far as I could see from my research, there were zero dissenting opinions as to this being the genuine Clavius Narcisse. And if you think about it, why would you lie about it? For reasons we'll get into later, that would actually be a bad idea, and otherwise, what's the benefit of grifting your way into being a subsistence farmer in rural Haiti? Doesn't really make much sense. Narcisse dies for real in 1994, and to my knowledge, has stayed put since then. So, to the medically observant amongst you, or those with a penchant for the supernatural, you'd be asking the same question. How could someone, who was a zombie, die again? He died once and got reanimated. Sure, the Bacor's spell wore off, and that set him free, but then why didn't he die again back in 1964? I do have an answer for that, and with that we're getting into our main theory. So the big, big theory, as we teased earlier, is the rather obvious idea that Clavius Narcisse didn't really die. As a matter of fact, this is the favoured explanation, and all of them really take this stance, because let's be honest, I'm not going to earnestly sell you the idea that the man was really a zombie. So Narcisse, and by extension the other zombies of Haiti, didn't really die. Okay, easy enough to buy. So why then did several doctors, a coroner, an undertaker, and his entire community think he was dead, and why did he think he was dead? That's the other element of this, by the way. Narcisse, and apparently every other Haitian zombie, were under the full belief that they really did die and really were reanimated. The answer? Zombie powder. What is zombie powder? Well, it's what it says on the tin. It's a mixture made from a variety of ever-changing ingredients, ranging from the common to the bizarre to the downright horrifying, that when applied to the skin of a victim causes their death and then reanimation. Now, that's how it's sold by voodoo practitioners. What Wade Davis theorised is that, in fact, it produces a death-like torpor from which the deceased eventually recover, thus giving the illusion of having been brought back from the dead. And that's where we get that tie-in to the Haitian penal code, the idea that giving someone something that would mimic death should be considered equivalent to attempted murder. So now we look at Davis's attempts to uncover the secrets of zombie powder. As mentioned earlier, he went to a voodoo priest called Marcel Pierre, who, after being tricked into thinking that Davis represented American businessmen who wanted to use the powder for their own evil ends, agreed to mix up a batch for him. It took several tries, but the final ingredient list was roughly as follows. Pufferfish, matter from a corpse, Davis's example was Pierre crushing the skull of a deceased infant that had been dead for about a month or two, freshly killed blue lizards, a large dried toad with a dried sea worm wrapped around it, prepared beforehand, something called cha-cha, which is albizia, a kind of silk tree, and itching peas, pois gratier, a species of macuna, which is a type of legume. What was mentioned in Davis's account was that the specific recipe was kind of fast and loose. Each bakur made their preparation individually, and differently, it was more an art than a science as to the individual composition. You see, Davis had a theory behind this, and it all has to do with the inclusion of the pufferfish. If you know anything about the Japanese fugu dish, 
Pufferfish can be extremely poisonous if ingested wrong, with a poison called tetrodotoxin being the main culprit. Now, ingesting tetrodotoxin is impossibly dangerous and usually results in the body's function shutting down, leading to death. But sometimes it doesn't kill the individual and instead leaves them massively sick with almost no bodily functions, including a severely weakened pulse and vital signs, but still technically alive and possibly even conscious. The theory, therefore, is that the mixture is applied to a person without their knowing and they suddenly become sick out of nowhere. They then die and are presumed dead but later recover. Then it's just a matter of robbing their grave before they wake up. There have also been cases in Japan of people being poisoned by fugu only to awaken either in their graves or in the morgue days later very much alive, so it's not just a Haiti thing. But how would a person then believe that they were undead? Well, it's a mix of two other things. Cultural beliefs and a boatload of hallucinogenic drugs. The former we've encountered before, with things like Wendigo psychosis. The idea that a cultural belief sincerely held can totally override your perception of reality is a contentious topic, but as with the other example we've seen, that the signs point to it being plausible. The latter is a result of another supposed ingredient, datura, called devil's trumpets, a hallucinogenic flower. A dose of that would produce some vivid mental images to be sure, thus potentially reinforcing the idea that the victim is undergoing a strange spiritual transformation. Now, as to its specific effects, Datura also adds to the lethality of the mixture. Alongside hallucinations, paranoia, suggestibility, and amnesia, it can also induce respiratory failure, heart arrhythmias, and possibly straight up kill you if it's ingested. Which might be why the mixture is said to be rubbed on the skin as the form of a poultice, so that the tetrodotoxin and Datura aren't ingested in large enough quantities to kill you outright. And again, this links with the penal code clause where it's understood that an attempt to mimic death with a strange substance could result in actual death, and thus must be considered attempted murder regardless of outcome. Perhaps the Haitian authorities were aware of this cultural practice. So Davis gets his hands on a mixture of zombie powder. In a glass vial, a lump of something that looks like black dirt gets taken back to the United States for chemical analysis. What was found wasn't exactly inspiring. Peer review failed to establish high levels of tetrodotoxin in the zombie powder samples, and some studies show that none were present at all. Davis was, however, undeterred. He has since argued that given the nature of a folk medicine and the fact that he himself acknowledged there was no universal recipe for zombie powder, even if his sample was bunkum, it would only take one genuine sample to make people believe in the power of zombie powder. Basically, because its strength is largely founded in superstition and placebo anyway, alongside the genuine medical effects, it takes a very small success rate to convince a cultural group who already are willing to believe in it that it will work every time, even when it very clearly doesn't. As to how the zombies kept believing their zombies, the Datura would need to be regularly applied, argues Davis. But the effects of the Datura, which also, again, include amnesia, mood swings, random and erratic violent behaviour, suggestibility increases, and other effects similar to delirium, that is, the inability to distinguish what is and isn't real, all could indicate that if given regular doses of Datura, a zombie would be willing to believe that they were one. Plus, there's a group madness element. If you see everyone else is a zombie, because they're all on the same drug as you, and they all also believe it, and they're all acting like one, why would you not be one, given that you vividly remember, or think you remember, dying and being buried, and are now being told by a Bacor that you are his undead slave on a sugar plantation? 
The main suggestion here is that basically most of the mental work is done via suggestion, which is helped along by a massive dose of reality-warping drugs continually administered. Thus, when the Bacor died, the spell wore off. That is to say, the doses stopped coming and eventually the zombies returned to reality. Now, as for why it took Narcisse so long to return, one suggestion that he himself stated was it was basically took that long for him to adjust to the fact that he was really alive, and that he wasn't a zombie anymore. I don't know how much I do and don't buy that. On the one hand, he spent two years living as a zombie, constantly kept in a state of almost total disassociation from reality, being constantly reminded that he'd died a long time ago and was forever the undead slave of a voodoo shaman. This, on top of the fact that he was conscious for his death, his funeral, and his burial, makes it a little bit suggestible. I do think, though, that it does make sense that it would take you that long to recover from that sort of harrowing experience. I just don't know if 16 years is too long for that sort of recovery. So, case closed, right? Well, not really. As I mentioned before, unfortunately, the actual sample size provided by Davis is small, and that's being generous. The sample itself didn't conclusively prove the theory, and since it hasn't been fully rigorously tested, and kind of can't be given what you would need to do to prove it, we can't know for sure that his theory is accurate. I will say this for Davis, he's no Eric Von Daniken. He seems, to me at least, to be genuinely interested in the scientific method and seeking an actual explanation for a supernatural phenomenon. As morally ambiguous as it got in the end, he actually observed the creation of zombie powder and then tested it to analyse his hypothesis. It's just that the peer review hasn't borne out his hypothesis, and so at the end of the day, we can't say that it's been proven. We can at least say that the boat's still out there. At the end of the day, we don't have any conclusive proof that Davis's hypothesis fully explains the phenomenon of Haitian zombies. We do know that it is indeed a phenomenon, if the reports of Haiti and cases like Clavius Narcisse are to be believed. Narcisse's case is important, by the way, because it gives an element of credence to the whole thing. We've got the death certificate, we have the hospital records, we have the interviews. We know, as far as we can be certain, that Clavius Narcisse was a real person. What happened to him is another matter entirely. Do I think he was a zombie? Of course not. It's one of those kinds of worm things, if you believe in zombies, you've got to believe in voodoo, and that's a paradigm shift that I'm not willing to undergo for the sake of an entertaining story. Do I believe in Davis's theory? It's interesting, I'll give it that. A paralysis toxin combined with hallucinogens and cultural reinforcement to convince everyone that zombies are real. It makes you think, for sure. There are problems with Davis's theory, however. Firstly, how come no toxicology report showed no tetrodotoxin in Narcisse? Maybe they weren't looking for it, or they didn't do one, but then that's just more unanswered questions. What's the success rate of zombie powder? If the penal code to be believed, it's low enough that the application of it has to be viewed as the same as an attempted murder, because that's a likely outcome regardless of intentions. Why did Davis's sample not have tetrodotoxin, even though it did apparently contain pufferfish? It's entirely possible that Marcel Pierre was a huckster who was banking off of established cultural norms, and this doesn't necessarily disprove Davis's theory, but it does make the evidence difficult to accept in that event. Sure, it might be based on a genuine recipe, but if we can't test it, then it's as good as a shopping list for zombie powder. Interesting, but inconclusive. There's one extra element we need to consider in all of this. The people who supposedly underwent zombification were oftentimes social outcasts. Narcisse, for instance, had been accused of walking out on his family, and at the time of his death was apparently in a land dispute with his brother. 
Narcisse maintained it was his brother who'd sold him to the Pacor, and part of the reason he'd waited so long to return to his family was he was awaiting his brother's death, which eventually came. Another victim interviewed by Davis, known as T-Fem, was apparently a petty thief who'd been punished by zombification. So there's another element to this, which is that turning people into zombies was an activity with a serious cultural root, rather than just a random act of cruelty by practitioners of dark arts. And all of this comes together for the big finale, what we talked about earlier, the history of Haiti itself. Why is being deprived of your free will and autonomy the biggest societal punishment you could receive in rural Haiti? Can any of you in the audience think of why being forced to eternally work on a sugar plantation for no money is something that the descendants of the world's only fully successful slave revolution be afraid of? Basically what I'm trying to hammer home is that zombification in Haiti is as much a cultural phenomenon as it is a physical one. It's a societal concept that keeps people in line, much like the myth of the Wendigo. If you're greedy and avaricious, then the spirit of the Wendigo will turn you into a horrifying cannibalistic monster bent on endless consumption and evil. If you break the societal rules or don't adhere to norms in Haiti, then your village or family will sell you into a bakor who will turn you into a zombie and give you a punishment of unparalleled cultural significance. And that concept of the zombie is based on roots that go all the way back to West Africa, so it's a pre-existing concept that's been co-opted alongside the slavery dynamic with the help of that syncretization turned into your worst nightmare as a rural Haitian. So the lesson here is that perhaps an echoing of the lesson of Wendigo psychosis, that the power of belief is almost as important as the scientific side of things and is intrinsically linked. It's the placebo effect, in essence. If you believe something enough, it manifests after a fashion. This isn't to say that belief shapes reality or that science could be overridden by belief, rather the opposite. The belief and physical reality are intrinsically linked. Your perception of a thing is almost as important as the thing of itself. That's a debate as old as philosophy. Are things objectively real outside of your ability to know them, or is your perception the determining factor? How this ties back to zombies, think of Davis's argument about success rates. Sure, the science tells us that the chances of zombie powder having its intended effect are astronomically low, but it only needs to work once to reinforce the cultural myth that it's got a power of its own, that psychological powder. The penal code reflects the idea that 999,000 times out of a million it won't work. It only takes the one time, though, that it does work to convince people that it does, and thus the myth is reinforced. And for the person being zombified, of course, for your Clavius Narcissus, the one time it works is all that matters. So, does belief shape reality, or does reality shape belief? It's a mix of the two. There's objective reality that exists, regardless of your ability to perceive it. But that which you do perceive is entirely open to interpretation. Color blindness, for instance. I see red, you see green. Who's right? The light's wavelength is objective, but our eye's interpretation of that data is, for entirely scientific reasons, subjective. But this doesn't mean anything to our brains, which, for reasons of personal comfort, because brains, due to their love of patterns, also love narrative, will think of any old reason to make it so. The zombies are created by almost total random chance. One in a million times does this zombie powder work and convince somebody that they're dead, through a mixture of primary application of a deadly neurotoxin and secondary application of powerful hallucinogens. But the determining factor is the person's belief that they're a zombie. If they don't buy it, then all the drugs in the world isn't going to convince them. But if they're open to the idea because of their worldview, then the drugs will coerce them into believing it, and that's the power of belief in action. Then they go back home, and nobody questions the story. 
because of the power of belief. Narcisse's family were surprised to see him, sure, but nobody doubted that he'd been zombified, because that's just what happens to social pariahs in rural Haiti. So there's your lesson for today. Placebos are powerful stuff, and sometimes the exception really does prove the rule, even if it does seem to defy all logic and all reason and all laws of nature. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.